This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. You're listening to the Reformed Media Review, episode number 16. On today's episode, James Dalzell discusses books by Gregory Doolin and Edith Stein on God's simplicity. Welcome to the Reform Media Review, our uh, occasional look at books and culture from a Reform perspective. My name is Camden Busey. I have with me today here in the studio, if you want to call it that, James Dalzell, who's a PhD student, PhD candidate in systematic theology at Westminster Theological Seminary. It's great to have you over, James. Thanks. Nice to be in the studio. <laughs> yeah. By studio, we mean my very small apartment. <laughs> we also have on the line with us Nick Batzig, who's a church planner in Richmond Hill, Georgia, with the PCA. We're pleased to have you on as well, Nick. Thanks, Camden. I'm also in my studio. <laughs> you have a studio, too. I have a bonus room, and I'm in that. All right. See, I wish I had a bonus room. Cause we could do a lot of... <laughs> but anyway, yeah, studio is a flexible term, and people, I think, would be surprised how... Uh, I mean, the uh, the surroundings of most radio shows, <laughs> because it sounds like it's in a big fancy studio and oftentimes it's in a closet somewhere. <laughs> but bonus room makes your house sound bigger than it actually is. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, right, what right. do you just, what do you do with that extra space? I guess build, build a bonus room. I know. It's... You've already got five or six bedrooms, I guess have a bonus room. <laughs> or instead, instead of saying you have four bedrooms, you have three and a bonus. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, anyway, today we're going to be speaking, uh, just letting you know about a few books on Doctrine of God, uh, particularly on God's simplicity. Uh, just spend a few minutes because James has been doing a lot of research, so he can clue us in and let us know at least what is out there in the field, so that if anyone's interested in reading more about the subject, they'll know where to go. So James is going to be our personal research assistant today and let us know what's out there on uh, the Doctrine of God. Okay, well, the... The few books that I want to mention um, aren't uh, none, none of them that I none of them are reformed. Uh, two two of them are are Roman Catholic, and I think it obviously raises the question: well, why why would a why would a reformed person spend their time reading that? And I certainly would want to preface this and say not not every reformed person would want to or should make the time uh, for you know for I mean it's it's important to get grounded in in the reform doctrine itself. Uh, First, sure, I think. Sure, but um, there are there are things being produced by by uh, other by other traditions uh, of thought that are definitely stimulating and can be instructive to us uh, as as Reformed Christians. And so, the first one I'd want to mention is a book published in two thousand eight, and and I'm sure getting zero press in the Reform world, but definitely worth looking at. And it's it's by. Um, a professor of philosophy at Catholic University in in Washington D.C. Uh, named Gregory Doolin. Uh, Gregory Doolin has written a book called Aquinas on the Divine Ideas as Exemplar Causes. And if that doesn't make you walk by the book at the bookstore, uh, not not much will. Um, but the the importance of the book from a reform perspective um, is basically this. Um, in a nutshell, what is the what is the uh, both theological and ontological status of God's knowledge, and particularly uh, what we call his ideas, and then this book focuses even more specifically on what we call exemplar ideas. Um, what does it mean for God to have ideas? And I think probably one of the bigger challenges is, um, what does it mean for God to have ideas of creation 
um, it, since he is the creator of all things, does God, you know, we, we confess and, and believe from Scripture that God, is, God doesn't have his knowledge um, by impression. He doesn't, he doesn't receive the image or the form of things outside of himself. And and Van Til would, would call that, for those Van Tillians, synthetic Right, God doesn't that, have God doesn't have synthetic knowledge. He's right. not a he's not a per- perceiver in the sense that we are. Right. Um, and yet he does have genuine knowledge of things uh, other than himself. He eternally knows things that aren't um, identical with his divine nature. Um, so Doolin kind of grasps, sort of gets at the difficulty of that challenge, given certain other um, reformed doctrines, and particularly what we might say the doctrine of aseity. Um, or along with that, the doctrine of divine simplicity, which says that there is nothing in God that is not God, uh, so that God is God is um, fully identical um, with all of His attributes. So that if so, it raises this question to kind of put the challenge out there: If God has knowledge of the things He intends to create from all of eternity, um, and yet there is nothing in God that is not God, is God's knowledge? of creation constitutive of God's essence or existence. Mm. Um, and this, this, this would go to the question of the decree, right? And how does God not change as well with that? Yeah, that would, I think that would come into it as, as a kind of, um, as a kind of parallel concern that, that could be helped by this discussion because the, it, it does, it does kind of throw you back on the question of what is, what is the status of God's knowledge of creation? And there's a, there's a long tradition of debate between uh, strong Thomists and Scotus, that is, followers of Duns Scotus. Scotus says that God, um, that God has a knowledge that is unique to his will, and Thomas would say uh, that, God, that, that um, all the things God wills, he already knows in his natural knowledge, so that God doesn't, God doesn't form so to speak, God doesn't form new knowledge by the act of his will, but rather he only wills things that he knows uh, are effectable by his power. Um, what I think the value of Doolin's work is that, that Doolin patiently uh, goes over the various writings of Thomas throughout his career and shows how Thomas develops a, a notion of the divine ideas um, where the divine, when we talk about divine ideas, divine, he, he first begins by defining divine ideas as as the as the original archetype or prototype of the created thing, so the things that God creates, in one sense, are reflective of of His nature. So when we talk about um, uh, unity, goodness, truth, all these things that we find in creation, these are in a small way um, imitations of the divine essence. And yet, we would say, as Reformed Christians, Anatomus would also say that no creature is a perfect replica of the divine essence. There, in as much as we reflect the divine essence um, in any way whatsoever, there's no sense in which we are a perfect imitation of what God is in himself. But, right. but Thomas will say, uh, and interestingly, Turretin and Bavinck follow him in this, and, and uh, Augustine precedes him in this, that there is a perfect conformity of creation to God's divine ideas. So though we participate, so though we reflect um, God's essence in one sense and reflect his ideas in another sense, we don't reflect or imitate both in the same way. We reflect God's essence imperfectly because no, because no creature can perfectly exemplify um, the, the same attribute that it reflects from God's essence. Um, but there's also a sense in which we do re, which we do imitate divine ideas perfectly, meaning God's knowledge of the things he intends to create is perfectly produced 
in creation, so that there's no sense whatsoever in which creation falls short of God's, um, uh, let's put it this way, intentional idea uh, regarding regarding that created thing. So there's a perfect imitation of the divine idea and an imperfect imitation of the divine essence as such. And Doolin asked the question, how does Thomas get from the divine essence to divine ideas? Um, and he basically says that he, that he basically shows that Thomas gets there through God's act of the will. So that when God looks at all the things, uh, and again, God doesn't look at things and decide to create them. He doesn't look at a pure realm of possibility outside yeah. of himself, but rather he looks at his own essence as imitable. And that's a big issue in Doolin's book. The, mm. the imitability, we, I think a better reform way of putting it would say the imageability of, of God in non-divine things. God looks at that in knowing exhaustively his own power, knows um, the infinite number of ways in which non-divine things can reflect um, his essence, and from there wills certain ones of those things to actually be created. And it is in the willing that God's knowledge uh, moves from from natural knowledge to what we call free knowledge or God's decreed knowledge back to Nick's yeah, that, point. Yeah, that's the thing. We have to make a distinction about even what God thinks about, that any yeah. knowledge that is not concerned with himself cannot be essential in a sense. It's already covenantal. It's already a condescension. Whenever he thinks about anything outside of himself, that in it that itself is uh, is a condescension of God. Well, in a, in a certain sense, and yet... Thomas is going to say that that God can have a knowledge of things outside of himself, not through perception of those things right. as as possibles, right. but through knowledge of his own essence as imageable. Yes. So that to know, he okay. not only knows his essence as he eternally subsists in himself, but he also knows his essence as he can reproduce replicas of it, as it were, in non-divine things. And mm-hmm. that in itself is part of his natural knowledge. Uh, yeah, go James. ahead. How does this how does this discussion affect Christology and the fact that Jesus is the Imago Dei, perfectly representative of the image of God, creating a body for himself, becoming part of general revelation? Does does this discussion does does it have a a point where and I don't want to get all neo orthodox, but where Christology don't do that. Don't get all neo orthodox, Nick. <laughs> no, because because the neo orthodox would focus on things like the Christ event, and but mm-hmm. there's a sense where all this does come to bear on Christology and Jesus renewing the image as the image bearer, creating God creating a body for His Son, you know, the Son of God creating a body for Himself, um, and how God doesn't change. He takes that body to himself for all eternity. How does all that you're talking about affect Christology in, in the Godhead? Well, I think, I think in a certain sense, um, because, because Doolin's Duel, work doesn't get it. I mean, in, in a certain sense, Doolin's work stays with, stays strictly within theology proper. And even that he's, he tends to, and this is a downshot of it from a reform perspective. He tends not to discuss it, um, in strictly theological terms, but in very kind of medieval metaphysical terms, and partly right, is right. partly the reason is because that's how Thomas does it. It's part of Thomas's natural theology more than of his um, you know revealed theology, which is I think you know stands stands Gen- general uh, theism, right? His- well, uh, yes and no. There's a cer- there is a certain sense in which the Trini- it is true the Trinitarian concern doesn't doesn't enter into the book, and I'm not sure that that's a defect in the book. Um, as as much as it's it's uh, sometimes a defect in Thomas's overall thought. Um, sure, sure. But sure. I do, but I do think this is the interesting thing. I do think that when you read Reform Dogmatics, when you read Turretin's Institutes, or when you read uh, Bovink Volume Two, 
you actually find both of them citing uh, Augustine most, but then also Thomas Aquinas on divine ideas with basically with with great sympathy, saying uh, that that they basically stand in that same tradition of what the divine ideas are. And I think the interesting contribution of Doolin's work is. He shows that there's a little, I think this is what he does, he shows that there's a little bit of room for reproachment um, or peacemaking between the Scotist emphasis on the will of God pertinent to his knowledge and Thomas's uh, usual emphasis on the natural knowledge of God. Um, I think what Doolin does is he turns up that Thomas Thomas also does believe in... um, an aspect of God's knowledge unique to his unique to his will so that an idea he even eventually Thomas doesn't even talk about exemplars he just begins to talk about ideas as the intention of God toward things to that he wants to produce or intends to produce and the intention of the artist so to speak or the intention of the creator becomes the thing that makes that makes that knowledge no longer natural knowledge only but now um, actually, willed knowledge or intent or or intentional knowledge, uh, the, or let's put it this way, decreed knowledge. Um, and I think what it does is it shows that Thomas has more of a room for for the place of the divine will in God's own eternal knowledge, maybe than historically has been thought. And I think for that reason, it also tends to show that there might be a little more agreement between Thomas and the Reformed tradition uh, than previously thought, because the Reforms tend Tend, reform tend to go with Scotus on the emphasis on the will. I think Doolin brings out a, a very strong emphasis on Thomas's will, on, on the will in Thomas's doctrine of God, um, that also is helpful in f- maybe even formulating a doctrine of the relation between God's knowledge and creation, mm. um, something that would fit well into Reformed dogmatics. Though I should warn anybody who would dare pick up uh, Doolin's book that you're going to have to do a lot of translating. And by that, I mean, you're going to have to translate um, medieval metaphysical knowledge and, and natural theology type discourse into um, the language of, of, of biblical reformed historic redemptive, no, uh, redemptive doctrine. I think tr- uh, that's what you're asking about, Nick, is what, how does this come to bear on, come to bear on uh, incarnation? I would, say, I would say that incarnation is one of those things that God first of all, eternally knows as, let me put it this way, um, possible or participable or producible. Um, he knows that it's something he can do, and it, it falls with, if, I mean, the, the knowledge of it, though, the idea of it falls within his intentional knowledge to actually produce it. Um, anyway, I think, on, I think on the whole, there's, he does a lot, uh, Doolin does a lot of great things. I think beside emphasizing the will, I think the, one other thing he does that's, that's hugely helpful is he differentiates between um, God's nature or essence as an exemplar of the creature, as I said earlier, and the idea as the exemplar of the creature. God's essence is only imperfectly an exemplar of the creaturely image, whereas his idea is the perfect uh, uh, exemplar of mm. the creature. I mean, let's put it in terms of, of archetypal, archetypal uh, knowledge. The archetypal knowledge that God has of each created thing most perfectly is his divine idea, because it's only the divine idea that's perfectly imitated in the creature, not the divine essence. And I think in this way, uh, Doolin, Doolin actually shows a strong creator-creature distinction 
uh, present in Thomas's own doctrine. Anyway, I'm sure some people are thoroughly convinced they don't want to read this book. <laughs> but I think others who, who think about issues of decree, the will of God, the intention of God, the cre- God's knowledge of creation as it relates to his essential nature, uh, this uh, and, and with a, a moderate level of, of medieval philosophical knowledge, and I'm, again, I'm no expert on that. I was able to trudge through the book. I think it's, I think it's a significant uh, contribution in that way. Now, um, well, I, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think it's good for us to know, you know, what was taught in medieval theology. Obviously, the post-Reformation reform scholastics are working in that in that sphere. The reformers were working, you know, w- with those categories, with right. that language. Maybe not with the precise language all the time, but Some, sometimes, um, though, even the precision comes right down into the reform tradition. Some of the some of the fuzzier language of the reform tradition could actually be um, illumined by this book. I think, kind of showing where they, you know, what the discussions were that they were drawing on. Yeah, especially with the Puritans, I was going to say, and Jonathan Edwards, hmm. um, you know. So I, I do think it's important for us to read this stuff and to to understand where the Puritans and Edwards were getting the language they were getting, and and building on what philosophy or hmm. you know contradicting what philosophies they were they were engaging yeah. with. So yeah, that's 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 a good point. And I think if you want to read, you know, from the reform perspective, what should your interest be? I think it should be as um, you know, basically, as as pre-Reformation or as as prolegomena, as it were, to um, prologue to to reform to the development of reform dogmatics, because this this discussion in particular relating to God's knowledge and how that relates to His being in essence is is um, definitely a major concern of, uh, like you said, Nick, the reform scholastics. Absolutely. Well, what are, can you give us a survey of just a handful of others that are out there that people might be interested in? Yeah, I mean, I can tell you something I'm reading. I'm not, I'm not necessarily sure. uh, warmly commending it, but I do think it's important work. I, I've just uh, recently looked at a work that was published this year, 2009, um, by Edith Stein. And if Edith Stein uh, is a name that doesn't ring any bells, it doesn't ring any bells with most of scholarship because she worked in relative obscurity. Uh, <laughs> the book that I the book that I looked at was called Potency and Act, and it's it's um, it's basically trying to fashion a a philosophy of God and the world from uh, a Thomistic outlook. The interesting thing with Edith Stein is that she was she was uh, as her name might tell you bo- born and raised um, as a Jew, studied uh, f- studied in the phenomenological tradition under Husserl um, in <laughs> in Germany, and was actually uh, probably his his top disciple next to uh, next to Heidegger. Yes. Um, so Heidegger and Stein were were his were his top students, and Stein was actually brought on to teach at the university at just about the same time that Heidegger was. Was that Marburg or, or uh, uh, where where was where was? Uh, yeah, I think Husserl. it might have been. Anyway, um, so so she comes in, but then she later has this. Um, she later has this conversion from the Jewish faith to Roman Catholicism, and she becomes a Thomist. And and. Reform book review listeners are thinking, oh, why in the world would I want to listen to the lady? Um, <laughs> what could she possibly say? Phenomenology uh, doesn't scratch your itch, uh, and and I understand. Sometimes I ha- sometimes you have to create the interest in a book, um, <laughs> you know, before you just recommend it. Um, she interestingly she becomes this uh, she becomes this Carmelitess and moves into the convent and is this devout this devout uh, Catholic 
none and and uh, eventually um and, and and is in the meantime writing prolifically um basically drawing to she's basically articulating Thomism in the language of phenomenology and she's challenging phenomenology with its own language of being time essence modalities and she's even talking about things like possible worlds and modal logic 40 years before that was hip i mean so in yeah. a certain she's she's an interesting person that way uh, she challenge, she's challenging Husserl and Heidegger from a Thomistic outlook. Um, her her career was cut short. Night in the in the early forties, um, the Nazis came and took her out of the convent, um, and she and her sister were both gassed at Auschwitz in 1942. Mm-hmm. Um, and her manuscripts basically laid unpublished in German, uh, probably in possession of the of the uh, you know the the Carmelites. Until 1998, when Act and Potency or Potunz und Act was was published in German, now 2009 it's published in English. Why am I reading this book? Uh, in particular, not it's 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 awful devotional reading. Um, it's it, it'll do, <laughs> it, it'll do nothing in terms of in in terms of helping you develop a a biblical. Um, or from the scriptures, a doctrine of God, but it will do this. It, it, it does actually demonstrate a commitment to some of the, some of the major, um, some of the major interests of traditional Christian theology, especially Thomistic theology, which sees an absolute distinction between creator and creature. And what she's trying to do is, is to articulate in terms of, in terms of um, modalities and substances um, and the language of, of um, person and essence, she's trying to give some sharp definition to those things that would actually fit with what traditional Christianity teaches about God and, and man and other things, um, even to the point where she can say that um, she can say that the image of, you know, she concludes that the image of God and man is, 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 un- is, is unique um, among any image or imitability of God and creation, so that she would she would argue for uh, man in terms of his in terms of his moral and intellectual nature as being uniquely in the image of God. Mm. Um, but it's not it's not just image of God. I mean, it's a lot of other things. She has she's, she does a good job coining some terms that are very lucid. She talks about she talks about um, the self sufficiency and the unself sufficiency of of beings. And her conclusion is uh, that that in the absolute sense. Every non-divine thing is unself-sufficient, um, meaning meaning whatever whatever it is 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 ultimately um, it is ultimately and profoundly dependent upon um, the yeah. the only absolute self-sufficient one who is who is God Himself, who also happens to be absolute person. What's interesting with her is she, she begins to she at least begins to. Um, Get into the realms that you might even recognize in Van Til, uh, where yeah, exactly. Van Til talks about God as absolute person. There's a real sense in which Stein, though in a very different language, is is going to say something very close to that, and she's even going to come go as far, I think, as to at least hint that God as absolute person is the ground and and sole sufficient explanation for individual persons in creation. Um, so. Maybe maybe that would be the one the one sort of tempting aspect of this book if someone wanted to pick up Potency and Act by Edith Stein, yeah. such um, as myself, such as yourself. <laughs> and again, we got to talking about this because for some of my own research purposes, I've been interested in absolute personality and its its position in in, in epistemology, and so uh, some of the sections in Stein's work are very 
helpful and interesting for uh, discussing that issue because she does, uh, as you mentioned, James tries apparently tries to wrestle with the definitions of some of these things that are very elusive. Right. Trying to define a person is is an extremely difficult thing to do. It is uh, trying to define what absolute person looks like is tough, uh, and then trying to then trying to do it in in a with a Christian outlook that doesn't accept. Um, an implicit monism in which God and the world are, are both uh, parts of some grand reality so that we can univocally predicate of God and creatures. Um, she, she, she has one thing to offer, especially in this regard to the reformed tradition. And that is um, a light commitment to the, to the absolute distinction, even at the level of, of being and reality between God and the world. Um, so that there is a real, so that there is a relation between God and the world, as in as much as God is the cause and sustainer of the world. Again, she doesn't talk about redemption, which will be obviously a lack from the reform perspective, but from the from the creational perspective, she she accepts a view of of reality that is entirely unlike what she learned uh, with the phenomenologists. That you yeah. can't draw the circle of reality around God and man and then proceed to talk about them both. No. Now that university she taught at was Freiburg. Not Marburg. Hey, well, you've you've got the uh, you've got the, got the high inter- speed right the there. Internets. So anyway, two two books for you for those who are really interested in this stuff. Uh, obviously, if this is causing you not to read or be uh, very familiar with the Reformed tradition, don't bother. But <laughs> if you're in this space, wanting to learn more and wanting to see some people really wrestle with precision on some of these issues um, from a position that we've traditionally cast aside, that has a lot to to teach us. I think um, maybe maybe uh, to f- say the same thing about this as Nick said uh, about about the other about Doolin's book. Um, there is a sense in which the, the the first and second generations, especially the second generation of of uh, reform tradition, reform scholastics. Um, I think you can make a case that that they plundered, they absolutely plundered the the, the best and most most orthodox of of medieval scholasticism. Yeah, and mm-hmm. some people see that as a blight on their record and as a strike against them. Um, I I don't. Obviously, the Reformed tradition as a whole doesn't, and let me even go further. The Reformed and evangelical tradition doesn't. I mean, even even evangelical theologies today still appropriate some of the major deliverances of of early and medieval scholasticism. So, I think that's an important point to make. And what can, what should our perspective be as twenty first century uh, Reformed uh, Christians and churchmen? Can is there still room enough to, as it were? Um, plunder the best of catholic scholasticism and i and i don't and obviously you can't do this indiscriminately you need of to course, have your feet grounded course. in in solid reformed and evangelical literature but but once you do i do think that there is that once you have that level of discernment and not saying that i have it perfectly sometimes i find myself not up to the task but but you you might want to look at some of these other traditions and really ask whether there's something that can be as it were were pilfered from there or recast in reformed terms yeah well, thank you for that, James. I want to let people know uh, you can also find uh, James has just been published in the Westminster Theological Journal. has an article in there uh, titled A Practical Scholasticism? Question mark. Edward Lee's Theological Method. Speaking of scholasticism, that's another place you can go and hear James uh, speak about the subject. So you can also uh, find Nick at feedingonchrist.com and you can get all sorts of information about us. And uh, all of our programs you can download and listen to your heart's content at reformedforum.org. If you'd like to contact us, please uh, call us at 44097-FORUM to leave a voicemail. Thank you for listening, and we want to speak to everyone when we say, Tola Lege, pick up and read. Pick up and read.